We're continuing our sermon series today on troubling the waters, where we're looking at passages of trouble throughout the Bible, passages where people of God get in trouble, sometimes the passages where Jesus get in trouble to find out how at times we're supposed to avoid trouble and maybe at times how we're supposed to get into trouble to prove our faith to God. And today we're going to begin with one of the early passages from the Bible that really speaks a lot to trouble with God, that passage from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 24, that story from the Garden of Eden. But before I read that to you, I invite you to bow your heads and join me in prayer again. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we come to you now with open hearts, hopeful to hear your word. We pray by the grace of your spirit that the words we hear and the thoughts of our hearts will lead us to your will for all of us as your church and for each of us as your children. Dear God, we love you. We thank you for your love. Amen. So again, Genesis chapter 3, beginning with the first verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God say that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? He said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the day of your, days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. I will. I've lost my place. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, "I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken." You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story of the Garden of Eden is probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. In fact, people outside of the church have even heard this story before. There are many people, in fact, who have gone searching for the Garden of Eden, trying to find it in the world around them, to to try to find the actual location of where this Garden of Eden might have been. And believe it or not, there was even a person right here in Florida who thought he found it here in Florida. You might have heard this, especially if you, were, if you grew up here on the Panhandle, but there was a man back in the 1940s and 50s named Elvie Calloway who decided that he, there was a place not too far from here, about 50 miles from here, that he believed to be the true Garden of Eden. He was a, a very interesting man if you read about him. He was a lawyer for many years of his life. He also dabbled in politics a little bit. He had been turned on and off by the church throughout his life, but he got involved with a, a, a mystical person, a spiritual advisor that told him to come up here and buy some land here on the panhandle and, and then wait for God to tell him what to do. And so that's what he did. He came up just about 50 miles from here, a little town called Bristol, not too far from here, right along the Apple. Alachicola River, and it was there that he, using his own logic, using his own reason, decided that there was something special about this land. He saw the Terea trees there that you might have heard of that are, not, again, not too far away. Trees that are actually uh, endangered trees, but are also prehistoric trees. They date back to before the last ice age, and he saw those trees and began to think, you know, this sounds a lot like that gopher wood that was in the Bible that was used to build Noah's Ark. I think maybe this is the same kind of wood. And then he looked at several of of the topography around there, looked at several of the rivers, the the Chattahoochee River and the Flint River and the Fish Pond Creek and and the Sandy Creek. And he said, those really look like the Tigris and the Euphrates and the Gihon and the Pishon. He said, I think this must be it. This must be the Garden of Eden. And for many years, he actually uh, put up a big sign that said the Garden of Eden and and encouraged people to come and and learn about his learnings and learn about his theory and and come and tour the Garden of Eden for for just a couple of bucks, of course. You could come and tour the Garden of Eden right here in the state of Florida, the true Garden of Eden from years gone by. Now, I can't verify that it was the actual Garden of Eden. I will tell you that L.B. Calloway lived to be 102 years old, so maybe he did find a tree of life somewhere. But this passage, like many other passages, there are passages all throughout the Bible. Some of them are meant to tell us history, to tell us fact, to, to show us factual information about the world around us. But there are also passages that are really meant to teach us truth. They may not be 100% factual, but they teach us truth about who God is and who we are. And whether you believe this story is factual or not, I hope we can agree that this story is meant to teach us truth. Truth about who we are as God's people and truth about who God is as our creator. And this story, the part that I didn't read, the beginning of the story, really starts out as a love story. A love story between, not between Adam and Eve, but a love story between God and creation. 
God loves this creation that God has made. And God loves humanity most of all. God loves the person and gives this person so many gifts. We can, can see that love right off the bat by, by giving the person life, first of all and most of all, but also giving the person meaning and, and purpose with their life by giving them the responsibility of all the creation to care for this creation that God has made. And then God gives them the gift of, of freedom. The freedom from want, the freedom from worry, the freedom to, to have everything that they need without any kind of worry or toil whatsoever. God gives these incredible gifts to the people of God because God loves them so. God gives them this freedom all except for one thing. God says, you see that tree over there? Don't touch it. Don't eat it. Don't do anything to it. Just trust me. Leave it alone. I know what's best for you. Stay away from that tree. Well, as Mary so eloquently said in the children's moment, that's kind of where the trouble starts. Because for us as humans, when I tell you not to do something, that's the first thing that comes to your mind, quite frankly. If I tell you right now, don't think about what you're having for lunch after church today, I got a feeling every one of you are thinking about what you're having for lunch after church today. And knowing that I'm the only one that's standing between you and that lunch, I need to get on with my sermon here. <laughs> but when we, that's the way our minds work. When you tell us not to do something, our minds go directly to that. So Adam and Eve were, were standing around pretty close to the tree, in fact. And, and there, it was there next to the tree that they hear these words, as it says, from the serpent that tells them, Oh no, you can eat of this tree. God doesn't, God, you won't be, uh, die if you, like God said, if you eat of this tree. In fact, you will have the same knowledge and the same perspective as God. You will be equal to God. And so the people have to decide if they are going to trust God or if they're going to trust the serpent. Again, that's where the trouble starts. That's really, Reinhold Niebuhr says, that's the definition of anxiety is when we have freedom with a little bit of limitation. That little bit of limitation gives us anxiety. We have to decide what we're going to do with all of this freedom and this little bit of limitation. But Reinhold Niebuhr, the great theologian, says, that's not a problem, that's not evil, that's not sinful anxiety, because out of anxiety is born many great things, great ingenuity, great joy, great opportunity. But it can also be the birthplace of uh, faithlessness and hopelessness when we experience that anxiety in a bad way. People ask, why in the world would God put this tree right in the middle of the Garden of Eden? It was to give birth to something new, to give birth to faith give birth to the opportunity for these people to have faith, not to be, not to be demanded or, or commanded to, to, like slaves to do something or another, but instead to have the opportunity to choose, to choose whether they will trust God or to choose whether they will trust themselves. Faith is, is given birth right there in the midst of the Garden of Eden. And of course, Adam and Eve don't choose the right way. What happens is they take uh, a bite out of that fruit, as you know the story so well. They take a bite out of that fruit, and, but instead of, of gaining the same insight and knowledge as God, it turns out that serpent was lying. They gain the knowledge and insight of broken people, people who see themselves for the first time, not as God sees them, but as the broken, limited people that they truly are. 
and that causes them to be ashamed of themselves. And that happens to us every single day. We have that choice all the time of how we're going to look at the world. You might remember, maybe this has happened to you, but years ago when I was uh, 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 working as an intern at another church not too far away from here, I was tasked with taking care of the, the uh, acting workshop at the Bible school that we were doing that summer. Now, I have absolutely no acting skills whatsoever, but I was the summer intern, and so I decided to do it. We had all the other children who could probably sense my own anxiety, and so they were a little bit shy as well. All of them except for one young child, a young man named Ryan. Ryan was not anxious at all. Ryan was excited about being put on display. Ryan loved to sing loud. Ryan made his own dance moves. Ryan was excited about being up in front of everybody. He was excited about being the center of attention, and he was, quite frankly, a little obnoxious, if I'm honest with you. But what Ryan did was because he was so loud and boisterous, he gave some confidence to the other kids, and we ended up doing a pretty good performance. That Sunday after Bible school, we sang a few of the songs. It was a great day. People clapped for the kids. They were proud of what they had done. And In fact, Ryan's father stood up there with a camcorder, a camcorder that had a VHS tape in it and taped everything that we did. And after church, he invited us all to come over to their house to have lunch and celebrate Bible school and watch that little video. So we all gathered in the living room, started watching that little video, chuckling, watching as, as Ryan made up his own dances and was singing real loudly and making up his own songs as we went. I looked around the room at all the people watching and chuckling. I didn't see Ryan anywhere. And finally, I peered back and he was hiding behind the couch. I walked around and asked him what was wrong and he said, I, I don't want to look at myself anymore. Please tell my daddy to turn off the video. It was the first time in his life where he had seen himself from another perspective. And he was ashamed. He was so ashamed of himself. And I, I tried to explain to him, no, that he had given the other kids courage, but his heart was broken because he saw himself, not as God sees him, but he saw himself as a shameful little boy who was doing something he wasn't supposed to do. Adam and Eve see themselves for the first time, not the way God sees them as this people that God loves, but they see themselves as the broken, limited people that they are. And they're ashamed. And again, that's where the trouble starts because it's there when they are ashamed of themselves that they start to shrink back even more. They start to hide from who God called them to be. In their attempts to try to be greater than they are, to try to be greater than, their, than God, they end up becoming less than they are, even less than human. They start to shrink back from all those things that, that God asks them to do, those responsibilities, those gifts that God had given to them. They, they shrink back and hide because they don't want anybody to see them, to see them fail. And I have to tell you, we have those same opportunities every single day. We're asked to do things that God has given us responsibility for every single day, but we now see ourselves as the broken, limited people that we are, and so we far too quickly throw up our hands and say, I can't do that. That's too big for me. We look at the problems around us in this world, our, our world itself, the environment that we certainly use and abuse as human beings, and people say, we need to take care of it. And we throw up our hands and say, that's oh, too big for me. 
Or we look at our neighbor, our neighbor who God has called us to love as ourselves, and we see violence and hatred and prejudice and racism, and we throw up our hands and say, oh no, I, I can't do that, that's too big for me. We see those people around us who are hungry and, and, and homeless, and we have every resource that we need to help them, but we throw up our hands and say, oh no, not me. That's not who I'm called to be. And we hide from those gifts, hide from those responsibilities that God gave us back at the beginning of creation. That life, that purpose, and that freedom. We have those questions are asked to us every single day. If we will hide or if we will be who God has called us to be. I had an opportunity like that this past week, in fact, and I was pretty close to hiding myself. Julianne and I this past weekend were celebrating our wedding anniversary and I was trying to enjoy a little bit of time away from from work and I had the emergency phone on me we have an emergency phone here at our church and of course even though we were it was my day off the the phone rang and so I had the choice of answering it or not I decided to answer it and it turned out to be a woman who was here in town and she was had been living in her car but she pleaded with me and said I have a job interview tomorrow it would mean so much to me if I could just have a, a good night's sleep and a and a and a hot shower to help me get ready for that interview and I told her well we have a partnership with a motel here in town I gave her the name of the motel and she said Oh, I've already been kicked out of that motel. I wonder if you could get, send me somewhere else. And I said, well, I, I don't know that I can do that. We have a partnership with this one place. And she said, well, maybe if you call them, they'll let me back in. Well, this conversation was going longer than I wanted it to, but I said, okay, I'll give them a call. I called the hotel, which is right around the corner. I told them who I was, and I told them the name of this person, and they immediately recognized the name and said, yes, we kicked her out a few weeks ago. She was so rude to our staff and left the place a mess, and I can't imagine anybody wanting to associate with her. And by the way, what's the name of your church again? Well, my first reaction, I wanted to say, this is St. Paul's United Methodist Church. <laughs> I know my friend Candace down the street wouldn't appreciate that. And so I told her, well, this is Brad. I'm from Faith Presbyterian Church. And after just a few seconds of silence, she said, all right, I'll do it for you. And I realized maybe I have more power here than I thought I did. It scared me a little bit. Now, the point of that story is not to tell you about how influential we are. Uh, in fact, I don't even know if the woman got the job. I don't even know if she went to the interview, quite frankly. The point of the story is I had lots of opportunities to hide. I had lots of opportunities to hang up the phone. I didn't even have to answer it. I could have let it go to voicemail. I could have told her, well, you made your bed. Now you have to lie in it. When, when the woman at the hotel had said, Brad, or, this woman is someone we know well. We can't have her back here. I could have just taken no for an answer. But instead of hiding, instead of being ashamed, I kept asking. And I tried to take care of my neighbor. God gives us the opportunity to do that every single day. That's our responsibility that God gave us back at the beginning of creation, to look at the world and to look at our neighbors through the eyes of God, through the eyes of Eden, in fact. That's what Eden really is about. It's not a place out there in the world. It's a perspective right here within us. 
It's a way that we look at the world and a way that we look at our neighbor by the way we treat them. And we have opportunities every single day to try to be the people that God called us to be. People with life, people with purpose, people with freedom. The freedom to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now we have opportunities And we can try as hard as we might to be equal to God if we want to, or we can try as hard as we might to be less than human when we're afraid. But our calling is to be exactly who God created us to be. Not as greater than God, but as children of God. Children of God who follow the way that God has called us to live. Children of God who tend that garden everywhere we go. Thanks be to God. Amen.